Chapter 15 The Six States of Bardo Can I ask you a question? said the animal. Sure. It's about the smoke you took. Do you know that it's also a bardo? She said. What do you mean? There are states to the bardo. It's different flavors of no man's land. It's like the shuffling of a card deck. We're not quite certain of the future plan. Imagine spinning a wheel. Take a ride to rotate, then wait and see. The cannabis smoke takes you in between, and it takes around three days to clear. And then after you come back to who you were, present reality will appear. She said, three days? Well, I inhale the natural medicine just about every night. You've been living in a bardo, neither wrong nor right, but in between, in no man's land, living on pause, waiting to make the future plan, keeping all options in sight. Nothing to fear and nothing to hope for. The in-between teaches you to let go of who you think you are and examine the spiritual center in your core. Now just as the cannabis bardo lasts for about three days, the Tibetan Book of the Dead says a person's death will escort them onwards in around 49 days. While the direct family may be silent and together for a seven-day period, the feeling of the bardo may stretch on and linger through time. All substance has a bardo, or a span of time in between digestion or decay. And even alcohol has a bardo of around three weeks or 21 days. To purify the body begins in the purification of the mind. And so we direct our awareness into that spiritual center to see what we find. She said, Okay, I'll ease up on the smoke and maybe even quit. I've just felt so down and out for so long and life keeps me pinned on the very bottom and I can't quite get with it. Well, it's not like the truth is written down. The flow of the universe's current has many ways around. It is enormously difficult for a human being to develop to full potential. The struggle with the infantile within us exerts a tremendous gravitational pull against achieving that full adult potential. Nevertheless, we need to fight gravity by impressions of hard labor and to build the pyramids of the boyhood nature first and then manhood that constitutes the core structures of our masculine selves. The ancient Maya seldom destroyed earlier structures from their city's pasts. Like them, we do not want to demolish the pyramids of boyhood, for they were and will always remain as generators of power and gateways to energy resources from our primordial past. But we need to get to work laying courses of stone over the old terraces and stairs. We need to build, brick by brick, toward the goal of mature masculinity, until at last we can stand on the high platform at the top, surveying our realm as Lord of the Four Quarters. There are a number of techniques we can use in this construction project. Analysis of dreams, the re-entering and changing of our dreams, active imagination, in which the ego, among other things, dialogues with the energy patterns within, thereby achieving both differentiation from and access to them. Psychotherapy in a variety of forms, meditation, especially on the positive aspects of the archetypes, prayer, 
magical ritual processes with a spiritual elder, various forms of spiritual discipline, and other methods are all important to deliver the process of turning boys into men. And if you find from your own experience that something is a fact, and it contradicts what some authority has written down, then you must abandon the authority and base your reasoning on your own findings. She said, and what are your findings? Reach into the medicine bag and let's find out. She said, I reached into the medicine bag and found a precious book and began to listen as she read it out loud. As it relates to the bardo, or being, there are six states of the in-between space. We could begin with the world of heaven, the realm of God. The world of God is a state of complete bliss, a spiritual state of complete balance from a temporary point of view, a meditative state. In order to survive in that meditative state of the world of heaven, there is the experience of the clear light, complete absorption into the clear light, or the perception of luminosity. So in the world of God, in order to survive as it is, they have to have the highlight of meditation, like the island which remains in the middle of the river. You need this particular type of highlight of what you are, which is the clear light experience. In terms of the ordinary experience of Bardo, it has been said that the clear light experience can only happen in the moment of death, when you begin to separate from the physical being. At the moment of separation between consciousness and the physical body, you begin to develop the idea of clear light as spontaneous experience. In that perception of clear light, if you are a meditator who meditated before, you begin to see the clear light and you begin to recognize it, as in the analogy of son meeting mother. But in the case of the world of heavenly beings, the clear light is a constant process. This also brings another kind of bardo, the bardo of birth and death. When we begin to leave one kind of experience, whatever it may be, we look for the next experience to get into. And between birth and death, there's a sudden recognition that birth and death would never need to happen at all. They are unnecessary. We begin to realize that the experience of birth and the experience of death are unnecessary concepts. They just happen. They are purely perceptions, purely the result of clinging to something. We experience birth in terms of creative things and death in terms of destructive things. But those two things never need to have happened. A sudden experience of eternity develops, which is the bardo of clear light. And this experience of eternity, beyond birth and beyond death, is the source of survival of heavenly beings in a meditative state. That's why they attain a pleasure state in meditation, because each time their meditation experience begins to wane, the only possible kick they could get, the only possible way they have of latching on to their previous meditation experience, is to reflect back on that eternity. And that eternity brings a sudden glimpse of joy, the pleasurable state of the absorption experience. This is the bardo of clear light. In other words, the experience of the eternity of clear light is the ultimate meditative state of ego and the ultimate state of nothingness. You see, 
The point is that when we see eternity from the point of view of the world of God, it is an exciting thing to discover. There is tremendous hope that is going to be the promised state of being, that you're going to be all the time like that. There is tremendous hope. On the other hand, from the awakened point of view, you see that eternity means constant nothingness as well, constant space. Eternity needn't really have existed, nor do birth and death need to exist. In the absolute clear light, in the case of the awake state, when you begin to feel solidness, you automatically begin to feel the loose quality of the space as well. The experience of clear light is extremely subtle. It is like experiencing hot and cold at the same time, extreme hot temperature and extreme cold temperature simultaneously. You could appreciate either side. If you'd like, you could believe in hot, although you experience both hot and cold simultaneously. Or if you want to believe in cold, you could believe in that as well, because it is also intense. The whole thing is based on this. Believing is, in fact, solidifying the experience of the bardo of clear light. So clear light could present itself as egohood, or clear light could present itself as the awakened state of mind. This is described in the Tibetan Book of the Dead as the after-death experience of seeing peaceful and wrathful deities. The pattern is as follows. You always get peaceful deities as your first experience, and then wrathful deities are the next experience. This again is the same analogy as the idea of experiencing hot and cold simultaneously. It could also be thought of as Jesus, followed by the Antichrist, both the morning star. If you have experienced the more pleasurable aspect of the eternity of clear light as peaceful deities, then automatically, if you are too relaxed in the pleasurable situation, the next situation brings up dissatisfaction and wakes you up. Eternity begins to develop as the impermanent quality, or the voidness quality of open space. That is the first experience of Bardo, which is connected with the world of heavenly beings. The clear light Bardo could also relate with our own experience of meditation as well. The perception of meditation becomes promising. That promise could be the equivalent of eternity as experienced in the world of God. Or else that promise could mean that there's no goal anymore, that you are experiencing that the promise is already the goal as well as the path. That is a kind of emptiness experience of non-existence of the journey. But at the same time, you are still treading on the path. It is an experience of freedom. Said the anima, does one have a choice at all? If you have some kind of eternity experience, and then you feel satisfaction, is there anything you can do about that, except recognize that you felt that satisfaction? The funny thing is, that once you begin to recognize it, once you begin to be satisfied with it, that automatically invites dissatisfaction, because you are trying to solidify it. That means that you feel some kind of threat, automatically. So you can't really secure that experience, because you just experience it and let things develop in a natural process. As soon as you experience eternity as sane and solid, you are going to experience the other aspect as well. She said, that's when ego is involved? 
ego's ultimate dream is eternity, particularly when eternity presents itself as meditation experience, she said. So where there's hope, there's fear. That, I would say, is the heart of the heavenly world, the world of God, she said. And if everything is in the mind, yet we can have experiences of truth occasionally, of which we are absolutely convinced, that truth is an expression of one's own being? There is something to that, and that something has to do with the distance of the projections. You judge whether you're experiencing something or not by the distance of the projections. From this point of view, there's no such thing as absolute truth. On the other hand, everything is true, she said. Bardo, or being, seems to be the ultimate extension of ego. What's the relation of that to the awakened state? In your analogy of the water and the island, what is the bridge to the awakened state? That mountain? That's a very important point. Seeing Bardo as the path to the enlightened state. On each particular island, Bardo is the highest point. In other words, it is the embodiment of the whole experience of each different realm. For instance, in terms of the world of God, eternity is the highest point of the ego's achievement, and because it is the highest point of the ego's achievement there, it is close to the other side as well, to the awakened state. She said, What is the starting point for the awakened state? Meditation becomes the starting point of relating. You learn how to create the right environment in order to relate to yourself. In terms of my experience, the learning process takes place constantly, all the time, in terms of working with other people. You see, that's the point when you regard yourself as officially teaching other people. When you regard yourself as a student on the path, that student would gain certain experiences and ideas by himself or herself through practicing meditation, going on a retreat, being with himself or herself, as well as by being with the version of the world. That's a very dangerous point when you begin to work with other people as a teacher. Unless you are willing to learn from students, unless you regard yourself as a student and the students as your teacher, you cease to become a true teacher. You can only impart your experience of what you've been taught, a package deal. And having done that, there's no more to say, unless you just repeat yourself again and again. Said the anima. By now the cards were back in the medicine pouch I had inherited from that medicine man, and I wondered what else was in these pockets, since that medicine bag went so deep I could not feel where it ended or began. There was a great mystery and wonder in all of this, and I wondered who and where I was again. Meanwhile, the kitten with the little tail named Kismet just woke up from a nap, and the larger black cat named Wax licked its coat in a tree branch while my hands were in my lap. These states are quite fascinating, not good or bad, rather they are both good and bad. They are then the spectrum of experiences we have had. I'm curious about the distinction between egotistical experience of the clear light and the awakened experience. What's the difference in emphasis between space and time? In terms of ego, it seems that space and time are very solid. In terms of awakened experience, 
the time concept is very loose. In other words, in terms of ego, there is only one center and the radiation from it. In terms of beyond ego, center is everywhere and radiation is everywhere. It's not one center, but it is all pervading, she said. And about the analogy of hot and cold, I think about the Chinese symbol of yin-yang and the knot of eternity, trying to flash back and forth between space and light. That seems to be the whole idea of Bardo altogether, being in no man's land, experiencing both at the same time. It's the vividness of both aspects at the same time. When you are in such a peak of experience, there is the possibility of absolute sanity and there is also the possibility of complete madness. That is being experienced simultaneously. In one situation, one second, one moment. That seems to be the highlight of Bardo experience. Because Bardo is in between the two experiences. She said. Does it have something to do with letting go in that instant when you decide which one you'll plop back into? In other words, when the thing is over, you either end up awakened or back in samsara, which is the wheel of the worlds including growth and suffering. Yes, she said. So it seems like you're given a chance, and if you miss, somehow you're back in samsara? You're actually practicing in everyday situations. When those peak experiences are not present, it brings them into a balanced state. The general pattern of life has developed into a balanced state of being. Then that acts as a kind of chain reaction enforcing the Bardo experience. In other words, you have more balanced possibilities of sanity because of your previous chain reactions. She said. Then it's like the base of a pyramid. The broader and more solid your base, the stronger and taller you stand. Quite yes. She said. So that's what sitting meditation is all about. Yes, that's the whole idea of Bardo being an important moment. Working on basic sanity provides tremendous possibilities. It is basic. There will be tremendous influence and power, she said. Is there something that continues after death? And I guess that something is the you that reincarnates? Nobody knows. But if you see it in terms of the present situation, experiences happen. They pass through continuously. Our physical situation can't prevent the psychological experience of pain or pleasure. It's beyond control. So if we work back from that level, there seems to be the possibility that even beyond physical death, there will be a continuity of consciousness throughout. But that's an assumption. She said. Can you translate Bardo again? Bar means in-between or gap, and Do means island. So altogether, Bardo means that which exists in between two situations. It is like the experience of living, which is between birth and death, said the animal. And what of birth? Birth is a bardo, and so we'll examine all the bardos. We discussed with the bardo of God, there is a point of eternity, an evolvement with eternity. The whole idea comes from an approach to spiritual practice, which is based on the principles of ego. You tend to reach a peak point in which you do not know whether you are following a spiritual path or whether you are going completely mad and freaking out. That is the point of Bardo meditation. You worked so hard to get something, 
eternal promise, eternal blessings, and so you begin to feel that you are achieving something. But at the same time, you are not quite certain whether that achievement is imaginary based on self-deception. That doubt brings madness. Conviction is a part of the pattern, which leads you to the madness. Conviction based purely on relating with ego, the patterns of which is pleasurable or painful, continues with all six types of bardo. The second bardo is connected with the realm of jealous idols, also called asuras. According to the teachings, it is described as the bardo of birth, which symbolizes and signifies a dwelling. The experience of birth and dwelling is based on speed and our trust in speed. It is based on ambition to achieve something. The bardo experience is not necessarily a meditative state of spiritual practice, but it is an ordinary, everyday life situation. You put out a certain amount of speed constantly, yet you are not quite certain whether you are getting anything out of it or whether you are losing something. There is a certain peak point of confusion or hesitation, uncertainty. It is as if you are going too far. If you spin really fast, faster and faster, if you spin fast enough, you are not quite certain whether you're spinning or not. You are uncertain whether it is stillness or whether it is absolute speed that drives you. This absolute speed seems to be stillness. This again is exactly the same point as in the bardo of meditation. That uncertainty as to sanity or madness. You see, we come to this problem all the time. Whether we have some peak experience of aggression, hatred, passion, joy, pleasure, or insight. In whatever we experience, there's always some kind of uncertainty when we are just about to reach the peak of the experience. And when we reach the peak point, it is as though we experience both hot and cold water at the same time. There is that kind of uncertainty between the fear of freaking out and the possibility of learning something or getting somewhere. I'm sure a lot of us have experienced that. It is a very simple and experimental thing. I would like you to have a clear perception of the Bardo experience, both theoretically and experimentally, particularly those who feel they have experienced so-called awakening have felt this experience. We are always uncertain whether we have actually achieved something or whether we are just about to freak out. And this very faint line between sanity and insanity is a very profound teaching in regards to the experience of Bardo and teachings in general. According to history, at the very moment of enlightenment, the realized one experiences hosts of Maras, or the demon forces against enlightenment attacking him with aggression and trying to seduce him with beautiful girls. That is a peak point or a moment of Bardo experience. The point is that once we have achieved some higher state, a so-called higher state, or a more profound state of something, the negative aspect, or the Mara aspect, is also going to be there, equally and exactly the same. And they both become more subtle. The subtleties of awakening are exactly the same as the subtleties of sleepiness or confusion. Therefore, Samsara and Nirvana are like two sides of a coin. They occur together in one situation. Such bardo experiences happen all the time within us. She said, what do you mean enlightenment? 
Enlightenment is the ego's ultimate disappointment, she said. And what's the next bardo experience after birth? The third bardo is the illusory body. This is extremely experiential and personal. The illusory body bardo, or bardo of illusion, starts from the river of passion and desire of the human realm. Such passion is very intimate. Everything is experienced purely at the naked flesh level, as though our clothing, masks, and skin had been peeled off. And this very personal, sensitive, and touch aspect continues with our state of being all the time. We react to situations emotionally, and these emotions are so sharp and penetrating that we can't bear to see them. It's very sharp, but at the same time, because of that experience of sharpness, and because the intimacy of desire and emotions is so intense, automatically we put on the natural device of masks, skin, and clothing. That is the problem. The minute we begin to put on masks or clothing, we have second thoughts. We are likely to experience these passions and emotions in their naked quality. But at the same time, it seems to be more manageable, pleasurable, to put some masks or clothing over them. There's that kind of ambiguity. On one hand, we want to indulge to dive into this experience completely. On the other hand, it is too embarrassing, even to ourselves, to do that. Having some kind of mask is good. From that point of view, that kind of uncertainty is an ongoing problem in life. In talking about the human realm, in connection with the bardo of the illusory body, a lot of problems and conflicts come from the preconceptions and expectations. We have expectations of achievement, expectations of fulfillment. We remember that driving force, the energetic and speedy experience of the world of the jealous idols. There's the nostalgic quality of wishing to go back to that level. Whenever everything happens so efficiently, we would like to imagine something before we get into it. And then we would like to create situations out of our imagination. We try to recreate them, to produce them physically as actual situations of now. The problem is that we are not able to achieve that, which brings us frustration. Another factor involved with the human realm is choice. Choice is based on irritation. Without irritation, there wouldn't be any choice but a choice between one particular category and another. In the human realm, for instance, there is a choice between the personal experience of analyzing oneself or intellectualizing oneself and the personal experience of instinct. Depending on the person's situation, one will automatically tend to pick up one of those two. We may feel uncertain unless there's an explanation or analysis, or else, in situations based on instinct, analyzing it causes the experience to become uninspiring. Analysis doesn't allow any room for inspiration. One would like to have a pure state of passion. These seem to be problems that run right through the human realm that we all face. But then how do we work with them? How do we see a glimpse of transcending them in terms of bardo experience? When we talk of illusory body, it is obviously illusory, not the physical, tangible body. It is a mind-body situation always. This illusory body is based on a very healthy attitude. These confusions and polarities are being worked with at a realistic level 
in which we are willing to face the illusory aspect, the mirage quality, the hallucinatory quality. So the human realm and its bardo experience has a hallucination quality or illusory body. This illusory body is precisely the transparent nature of experience that we see, yet we don't see. We see something, yet at the same time, we are not quite certain whether we are seeing the background or the scenery itself. Uncertain hallucination, ultimate hallucination. And that ultimate hallucination acts as a bardo experience. It is the choice between the real and the unreal. Is this illusory body illusion itself, or is it pure imagination? One begins to question whether the illusion or mirage exists or not, and a person again begins to be involved with this threshold between the transparency of the figure and the solidity of its background. One begins to have a very confused attitude about this. You are not quite certain whether you are actually getting somewhere or whether you are being fooled by something. The peak point of not being certain why, but things just happening, is the bardo experience of the human realm. Again, it carries the same sense of possibilities. I'm not quite certain why I am here, but if I pass that level of uncertainty, maybe after all, there is something, or maybe after all, there isn't something. It is the very fine threshold of not knowing who is fooling whom, but at the same time, something is fooling something. That foolishness is the illusory quality of not knowing. There's nothing tangible at all. It is completely loose, irritatingly loose. It's almost worth getting aggressive. It's like trying to pin up a poster to paste it on the wall, but somehow the wall doesn't exist, and the poster doesn't exist. It shifts all the time. You can't fix it. Realize this foolishness of who's fooling whom which is the illusory body, the bardo experiences of the human realm. It is the desire which drove us into this particular experience, and which is the bardo of the human realm. In other words, we find ourselves here because the river of human consciousness, human passion, drove us here. And so we find ourselves here, but at the same time, having found ourselves here, and then not knowing what we are doing, is the peak of the bardo of the illusory body, which is very important to realize. The illusory body is made out of both yes and no. It is both negative and positive. You are not quite certain where it is, how it is. It is ambiguous, uncertain. At the same time, there is a general feeling or perception of the transparent quality of the body, or you could say, realizing the foolishness of us. It is like the analogy of us being here together and fooling each other, that uncertainty or vagueness. Not knowing exactly whether you are going or coming is the illusory aspect. It is seeing the abstract quality of nature as it is, the dance of illusion. She said, Is this dance of illusion something I'm trying to avoid? All of a sudden, I feel very trapped and confused hearing this. The actual practice in everyday life is just to acknowledge that transparent, uncertain quality as it is. There's no point in trying to stay back or run away from it. In fact, you can't because you are in it. 
and you can't force its development either. It has its own pattern. The only way to work or deal with this bardo experience of the human realm is just to proceed along. Depending on your previous training and meditation experience, or your training in aggression and passion, you just go along. It's the karmic pattern. You got onto this particular train, and the train is going to go on and on and on. There's no point in panicking. You just have to accept it and face it and go along with it. All the Bardo concepts that have evolved have that unchangeable quality, that natural powerful quality. Once you are in that state, you can't change it. The only way you can deal with it is to see its background quality," she said. So am I trying to get somewhere or do something? It seems all I can do is try not to put my projections on it. Just go along with it and don't panic. There is an opportunity for freedom, and freedom is the possibility of being generous. You can afford to open yourself and walk on the path easily, without defending yourself, or watching yourself, or being self-conscious all the time. It is that absence of ego, the absence of self-consciousness. That is ultimate freedom. The absence of self-consciousness brings generosity. You don't have to watch for dangers or be careful that you are going too far or too slow. It is the confidence, which is freedom, rather than breaking free from chains of imprisonment. Developing confidence and breaking out of psychological, internal imprisonment brings freedom naturally. So in other words, it is generosity," said the animal. And so far we've discussed the bardo of clear light, which connects to the realm of gods, the bardo of birth, which connects to the jealous idols, the bardo of the illusory body, which connects to being a human. Then an animal bardo must come next. The animal realm contains the confusion of being utterly involved with self-consciousness. Usually when we talk about confusion, it is not being able to make up your mind, such as whether you belong to this or to that. But in the case of fundamental confusion, you are proud of your confusion. You feel you have something to hold on to, and you do not want to give in or to yield. You are extremely proud of your confusion, extremely self-righteous about it, and you would even fight for it. If there is a notion of validating confusion, that means there is also a tendency to overpower others. So power over others is one of the other factors involved in the animal realm. You are aggressively sure of what you are, and because of that, you would like to influence other people and draw them into your empire, your territory. Such power could happen politically or spiritually. If you don't see the situation as it is, it doesn't matter whether you know what to do or not. You just push through and present a show of force, and accidentally something happens, something clicks, then you take over. The tendency to overpower through confusion is the dominant characteristic of the animal realm. It is like attacking a tiger. The more you attack a tiger, that much more does the tiger become egocentric and aggressive, because the tiger is not quite certain whether you are going to kill him or he is going to kill you. Confusion seems to be the peak of the experience of the bardo in the animal realm, the dream bardo. A lot of people may expect that in the dream bardo, 
we might discuss how to play games with our dreams, how to levitate and of astral traveling, visit our friends, visit unknown worlds, surveying all unknown territory. But if you look at the dream world as it is, there's no room for astral travel. It is the hard truth that dreaming, although very creative, is based on the uncertainty between day experience and night experience. You are not quite certain whether you are sleeping or not. And so as you realize that you are asleep, that you are dreaming and have a terrifying dream experience, it immediately dissipates and you begin to awake. The nightmare begins to wake you up. The dream bardo is the confusion of not knowing what you are, whether you are a gentle person or an aggressive person. Dreams are very much the day experience into the sleep experience. Metaphorically, we could think of dreams not only as sleep experiences alone, and so we are uncertain what is real and what is unreal. The dream bardo is a way of seeing yourself in that particular uncertainty. In a drug experience, for instance, you are not quite certain whether you are completely able to see the subtleties of things as they are. There is a sharpness to the color and the overall experience, but on the other hand, it has an imaginary and confused quality as well. You are not quite certain whether you are going crazy or whether you are actually seeing something. That is the source of dream bardo. Dream bardo also has to do with the confusion involved in making decisions. Often a lot of us try to make decisions. Should I be doing that or should I be doing this? Should I commit myself into this or shouldn't I commit myself into this? There is uncertainty, ambiguity, and confusion. Fundamentally, confusion is based on not knowing the actual situation, not being able to see the meeting point of the two. Should I or shouldn't I? I wouldn't exactly say the answer lies between them, but the actual experience lies between them. Experience lies between should and shouldn't. That no man's land quality of Bardo is the same answer in some ways. It is the same way of breaking through. Further on, once you are able to see that particular precision of the in-between experience, that no man's land experience, you begin to see that you should and you shouldn't has been childish. You can either do that or do this, but there is no permanent experience, no permanent security involved. You begin to see that some kind of basic core of continuity is taking place, rather than trying to change from one black to another white. So confusion and tension, in this case, is extremely useful and helpful. Without that, there would be no pattern of seeing a situation or learning process at all. In other words, confusion and uncertainty are like the letters or initials for each step that you have to go through. That is the bardo experience of the dream world. The dream bardo that you go through is an extremely important and very personal experience. She said, if you make a decision, it is going to bring you tension because you don't know how it's going to work out, whether it's going to be good or bad. Do you just go along and continue to accept it? Ultimately, decisions don't come out in terms of yes and no, black and white. The ultimate answer, so to speak, would say you're right, but at the same time, you're wrong. She said, 
So that brings up tension. That releases tension. The ultimate tension. If you are involved with something, and if you reject or accept absolutely, 100%, then the tension is going to remain all the time. There is no way of solving the problem of tension by making black and white decisions. The only way of transcending that tension is through the acceptance of all aspects, she said. That's in the future someplace. Immediately, you can't have this lack of tension, so you have to wait for the situation to clear itself. Exactly, yes. Nothing is going to be a magical sedative. But strangely enough, once you begin to accept that, then half of the problem has been solved, she said. You said that the acceptance of the situation solved half of the problem of making a decision. But I wonder if the other half, actually having to go ahead and decide, grows out of acceptance. That acceptance is faith and gentleness. It could be said to be compassion. Once you see the situation as it is, then you just involve yourself in it and it takes you along. In fact, you can tell what the end is going to be. That is developing egoless common sense. Egoless common sense is not based on because of anything, but it is based on it will be so. You could project your future quite accurately or take the right path quite accurately if you had that general egoless common sense. With such precision and clarity, as well as egolessness, you are not dwelling on hope and fear. Then things take place naturally, she said. Can things take place completely passively in that way? I want to know if there's an active side to the picture. Of course. The physical situation of committing yourself and taking actual symbolic gestures, so to speak, is itself an earth-grown quality, she said. Can that active side be described? Is it moving like a cow? Is it leaping? Is it being like a protector? Yes, definitely. It is a protector type of existence. I mean chance, of course. All the time taking chances. You have to be brave, she said. What does it mean being brave? Not looking back, she said. The way you use the word protector, and the way we've been relating to protectors, could be like a warrior in terms of fighting? That's where bravery comes in. Not to hesitate, because you see action as it is. Not to interpret in terms of concepts, but try to work with action itself and go along and along. But somehow that doesn't mean struggle. Absolute protectors, ideal protectors, don't struggle. They just proceed along because they know their world, they know their abilities. They don't question it. Their actual inspiration comes from the situation as it is. If the situation becomes more and more overwhelming and powerful, that much more energy goes along with it. It's like judo. You use the situation as your power rather than trying to fight with it, she said. Does a protector go back and forth? Does he or she sometimes just sit and watch? That image of a protector doesn't seem to go along with the attitude of passive acceptance necessary for seeing situations. Acceptance doesn't mean not committing yourself just dwelling on the idea of such and such. It is accepting and then putting yourself into that situation of acceptance. That allows you space. You don't rush into something completely because you had a flash. You take a portion and then you eat it, digest it, 
and then you eat the next portion, she said. What should one's attitude be toward possible mistakes? It is apparent that mistakes have a point to them, and so as far as the protector's steps go, there is no defeat at all. There are no mistakes at all. Both positive and negative are the path, the general pattern. Any negative experience which occurs is an invitation or vanguard of positive experience as well. It just happens that way, she said. In any experience, how much of that experience would you say we have control over in terms of will? Is there a percentage there? That's a rather dangerous point. When we talk about will, it is purely based on ego's terms of benefit, or whether ego is willing to leap out and sacrifice itself. But there is some kind of faith, rather than will, which is seeing things as they are. Then you are not afraid of acting. It is an intuitive way of living and relating with situations. That kind of faith or determination, in fact, dominates the whole process. It's the most important point of all. It is the fuel to drive yourself, she said. But who am I? Hungry and thirsty, and trying to find an alternative, is the realm where we are today, the hungry ghost realm. Hunger and thirst could also be said to be waiting or expectation. There is a constant demand for something, constantly being busy at something, constantly wanting to learn, constantly waiting to know, wanting to get it. So one connected with the hungry ghost realm is the disease of the learners or the hang-up of learners. There is so much ambition and hunger to learn something, to know something, which is connected with expectations. And that in itself, that ambition to learn, is the obstacle to learning, she said. But shouldn't we have ambition? Shouldn't we be conscientious and drive ourselves to knowledge? Shouldn't we work hard on our homework? Shouldn't we read hundreds of books? Shouldn't we become successful? Shouldn't we not only be good students, but become famous teachers? There's a kind of chain reaction of building up status, building up your collection of knowledge, which may be necessary if you only want to learn. And if you know that learning is purely a technical thing with no reference to knowing at all, you can learn without knowing. And you could be a teacher by learning but it is not possible to become wise by becoming a good student. Through this ambition that we put out, in this hunger for knowledge, every word is questioned, sucked in by our pure desire, by our magnetizing state of mind, in order to gain something. There is a difference between that kind of hunger and grasping and actual communication with the subject that you're going to learn, making an actual relationship with the subject it is like the difference between reading the menu and deciding to eat. If you have a clear idea of what food you want to eat, you don't have to read the menu. You immediately order it. But in fact, we seem to spend so much time just reading the menu. There are all sorts of temptations of possible dishes. Shall we order this or that? A whole culture is based around the eating and drinking process. A whole independent culture another kind of civilization almost. Everybody's complaining, everybody's ordering, everybody's eating, everybody's drinking, everybody's paying, and more and more people are coming. Everyone's being served, and this is the world of hungry ghosts. If we simplify, we eat because we are hungry 
and we drink because we are thirsty. But somehow, the primal motive is not relevant anymore. We don't eat because we are hungry. We eat because we want the taste, or because we want to go out. The whole idea of going to a place to eat is because it is different, a change from our cooking, a way of relaxing. There are levels to the craziness or hallucinations involved in the hungry ghost realm. First, you dream of food and how delicious it will be to have it. If you have an image of chocolate ice cream in your mind, you reach the meditative state of chocolate ice cream. You see it in your vision, your hallucination. The whole world becomes that shape. And so this could be said with alcohol, cannabis, drugs, or any substance. The second hallucination is like a mirage. Seeing the world as a gigantic chocolate ice cream waiting for you. You go towards it, but when you get near it, the chocolate ice cream begins to become a pile of rocks or a dry tree. The third type of hallucination begins with having a certain idea of food in mind. You have a strong driving force to work for it and eat it, and that driving force goes on and on. In the distance, you may see food being served and you have to go there, but suddenly the server becomes the guardian of food. Instead of serving you, they have swords, armor, and sticks to ward you off. But the food is still visible in the middle of that whole scene. That's the third type of hallucination. And then there is the fourth type. You see the food and you have a tremendous desire to eat. Your desire to eat becomes very active and aggressive. So you have to fight with those guardians and knock them out. Then you rush to the food, you pick it up and eat it. These are all analogies of different degrees of hunger and that grasping quality of the hungry ghost could take different shapes. This hunger and thirst goes beyond food. It could be material goods, security, weapons, knowledge, or anything we grasp at really. In terms of bardo experience, the particular type of bardo experience associated with the hungry ghost realm is the sip of bardo, or the bardo of existence, creation, or becoming. You actually manufacture a completely new experience, another type of experience. And the particular experience of the sip of bardo, the bardo of existence, is the threshold between grasping with hunger and the experience of letting go. Not quite letting go, but the experience of giving up. In other words, giving up hope. Giving up hope doesn't mean just naively declining, or giving up hope purely out of frustration that you can't bear it anymore. The absence of hope in this case is based on being able to see the humorous situation of the moment, developing a heightened sense of humor. You see that your striving and grasping is too serious and too concerned. A person can't have a sense of humor unless he or she is extremely serious. At the height of seriousness, you burst into laughter. It's too funny to be serious because there is a tendency to see the contrast of it. In other words, humor cannot exist without contrast, without two situations playing. So what is lacking in the hungry ghost realm is humor. It is a deadly honest search, seriously searching, seriously grasping. This could apply to seriously searching spiritually or materialistically or anything. Seriously making money, seriously meditation with such solemn faces. When we want something, it becomes very serious, completely humorless. The world of hungry ghost, 
or Petras, is based on the seriousness of wanting to grasp something, and it is heightened by the Bardo experience to the point where you are not actually hungry anymore. You see? That's the difference between the Bardo experience and the ordinary hungry ghost experience. In the ordinary hungry ghost experience, you are hungry. In the Bardo experience of absolute intensity of hunger, you are not hungry anymore. Because the vision of whatever you want to have is so much in your mind, you reach a kind of obsession. In fact, you are so overwhelmed by the desire of wanting something that you forget that you are hungry, that you are starving. You become more concerned with the presence of what you want. You begin to become one with the presence of the thing you want. So fundamentally, this realm is based on the relationship between the self-conscious ego, myself, and me. That ego wants to be. It wants to have a certain particular thing as my idea. It wants to be fulfilled. The frustration comes from the danger of this not being able to be fulfilled completely and properly, said the anima. But all these bardos, if we are all trapped in between, then what's the point? Has there ever been anyone who's able to get through this? Or to be with all of it so fully to realize the nature of what this is all about? There was the awakened one, Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, who sat beneath the Bodhi tree and was tempted by the Maras, and he vowed to attain enlightenment even if his bones crumbled and turned into dust. In that situation, he was in the hungry ghost realm, a hopeless seriousness. Once you reach the higher spiritual levels of enlightenment, the higher your state, the more advanced your state of development, the more temptations there are. Therefore, the temptations also become very sophisticated as you become more sophisticated. This goes on and on. That is exactly the point of the host of Mara begins to attack the awakened one called the Buddha. I would say that point is the most advanced level of the hungry ghost realm. That is why the Maras, or demons, have to come and why the temptations of the Maras are necessary. They are exactly what is needed in order to provide contrast between awake and confusion, said the anima. So the host of demons are necessary in order to provide contrast? Because the host of these demons bring confusion to its peak? Exactly. Very sophisticated confusion, purely matching the possible awake state that you're going to attain. It's equal, she said. So one should not really have to strive to develop that completely, but just accept it and not try to call it awake? Once you accept it, it becomes the force of compassion. In the story of the awakened one named the Buddha, each arrow shot at him turned into a flower. There wouldn't be a flower unless the demon shot arrows. So the whole thing becomes a creative process, a rain of flowers. Each act of aggression becomes loving kindness or compassion. She said, that's the thing. When you get into confusion, it becomes overcrowding sometimes. And the temptation then is to move away from the confusion. Yes, that's the general temptation. But then what happens is that the temptation follows you all the way. When you try to run away, the faster you try to run, the faster the temptations come to you all the time unless you decide not to run. You're providing more feedback to the temptation when you decide to try to get away. 
unless you are willing to make a relationship with it, she said. As you talked about the temptation of the demons named Mara, could you relate that meditative absorption into the world of God to those kind of temptations? What's the difference between meditative absorption in the God world and temptation? That's a good one. You see, the interesting point is that in the complete meditative absorption of the world of God, there wouldn't be any temptation because nobody wants or demands your attention. You are paying full attention all the time to ego or the bliss and heaven you are personally getting. So the Maras are satisfied. They don't have to try to shake you back, bring you back to samsara. You are already in samsara and you are grooving on it. It seems as if temptation can only occur if you are trying to get away from that centralized ego, she said. So there is not a situation when you are just in the world of God, because when you're in the world of God, you are also a hungry ghost? That's right, but less dramatic. Because when you are in the world of God, the whole situation is more relaxed and self-satisfactory, she said. Yes, but somehow we unconsciously want to remain in it. Or if you fall back down to the world of jealous idols, you want to go back to it, so you are a hungry ghost. Yes, you could say that all six realms have a hungry ghost quality of one kind or another, because all six realms consist of grasping or hanging on. That quality is always there. But when we are talking about the hungry ghost realm, it's more obvious, more vivid, she said. Are all the Bardo states ego? The Bardo states are definitely ego, all of them. They are the heightened qualities of the different types of ego and the possibilities of getting off ego. That's where Bardo starts, the peak experience in which there is the possibility of losing the grip of ego and the possibility of being swallowed up in it. There is that kind of confusion between freedom and escape, freedom and imprisonment, she said. So in each Bardo state, there's a possibility of escape? I think so, yes. The awakened one called the Buddha described that through an analogy. There's the one called the Bodhisattva, or the one who touches freedom or nirvana, but delays departing in order to come back and help all sentient beings out of compassion. The Bodhisattva's actions are as if you are about to step out of a room at the point when one leg is outside the door and one leg is inside the door. And so the Bodhisattva wonders whether he or she should step back or proceed, that in-between. That's an analogy for Bardo, she said. Did I understand you say that when you are in the world of God, you have your ego? Yes, she said. That's very disappointing. I know, she said then one should not attempt to meditate more? If one is more and more in the state of meditation, then one should try not to be, because then one is a hungry ghost? That's it exactly, precisely, she said. So one should try not to be in a state of meditation. Exactly. You see, that's the point of meditation and action. The point of action does not mean you have to try to maintain a meditative state or act simultaneously as though you were trying to manage two things at the same time. But action is that you truly act, you act properly. The idea of saying, when I eat, I eat. 
when I sleep, I sleep, is acting properly, thoroughly, and completely. Meditation in the prerogative sense is dwelling on something. Action demands attention. You go along with that particular paying attention to the situation and working skillfully with situations without reference back to yourself. How you should act. How you shouldn't act. You just act, she said. But why is ego involved in the world of God? Because the world of God is a sophisticated state of ego where you want to experience pleasure all the time. And once you experience pleasure, then you want to retain your pleasure. You always want to refer back to yourself. That is ego, she said. How does one liberate those desires of fulfillment that ego presents? It seems that trying to fulfill is another escape. Exactly the same as trying to suppress. There is a conflict between you and your experiences, your desires. It is a kind of game between ego and its extensions. Sometimes ego tries to overpower the projections, and sometimes the projections try to overpower ego. That kind of battle goes on all the time. So the point is to see the battle as it is, rather than fulfilling the desires or suppressing them. She said, Then you have to stop wanting to be enlightened? Is that the idea? That seems to be the point of the Bodhisattva path, in which you transcend the desire for the attainment of enlightenment and continuously work along the path. In that case, the path is the goal and the goal is the path. Then enlightenment becomes almost a byproduct rather than a deliberate aim. She said, Is awakening in one of the realms good for all of them? Awake is just awake in any realm. She said, Then I see how a lot of the way I think about enlightenment has to do with my ego. My ego thinks it's so special that I deserve something special. My ego somehow thinks it's very revolting and repealing to be like the ordinary people out and about, but rather enlightenment is very ordinary and simple. That's a very interesting point. The awakened state is the ordinary of the ordinary, an absolutely insignificant thing. And if you see it in that way, then with all the expectations it builds up, ego is really going to suffer and be irritated, she said. But even the path sometimes inflates my ego. It sure does. Therefore, your relationship with the path should be an ordinary one, she said. But even with the ordinary, the ego is still there, choosing something or other. Yes, and that's always the danger. If we place more emphasis on being extraordinary or on being ordinary, it's almost the same thing in terms of ego," she said. Then it seems that you can't get away from it in any way. That's the whole point. Give in and stop trying to do anything at all. It's a kind of judo play. You don't push ego, but ego is pushing you, which becomes ego throwing itself away by itself," she said. And now there was a long period of silence. That whisper of the wise intuition seemed to be hidden. And the more I tried to find her, the more I could not. I looked all around the forest as the two cats followed me. But our conversation had stopped, and now I began to feel the opposite of patience. I felt aggression. That experience of hell began to overwhelm my senses, and there was only one place I thought I could find relief. I wandered to the water's edge, 
where I saw the mirror of the water surface. As soon as I looked into my reflection upon the mirror-like surface, I heard the anima shout, Hell! Examining this lesson, I listened. The experience of hell comes from deliberate, basic aggression. That aggression is opposite of patience. Patience usually means being extremely kind and cool. But patience, in this case, is not only keeping your cool, but is seeing the situation in its fullest extent. This patience could be said to be active and energetic, as you are part of the situation. That basic aggression of hell comes from your wanting to destroy your projection. It is natural aggression. You want to destroy the mirror. As projection works as it is, in a very efficient and accurate way, it becomes too embarrassing. You don't want to go along with it. Instead of seeing the naked truth, you want to destroy the mirror, she said. What is the mirror? The mirror is everything. We don't see things as they are, but rather we see things as we are. It is the projection, the reflection, and also the perceiver of the mirror. Hell is the mentality of wanting to destroy the projection, the reflection, and the perceiver of the mirror as well as the mirror itself, or the world. There is a constant struggle, destruction going on. The bardo connected with the experience of hell, the bardo of death, has to do with the claustrophobia of pain and pleasure. The sudden peak of anger, in which you do not know whether you are actually trying to destroy something, or whether you are trying to achieve something by destroying. It is this ambiguous quality of destruction and creation. Naturally, of course, destruction is in itself creation, but somehow there's conflict. You have created destruction. Therefore, it is creation. In other words, one is not quite certain whether you are actually going or coming. The moment you think you are going, you discover that you are coming. That extreme speed of running, rushing, becomes confusion, which is the particular peak experience of the bardo of death. Death could be said to be birth at the same time. From this point of view, the moment something ends, the next birth takes place naturally. So death is a recreating of birth. It is the same idea of reincarnation, the rebirth process. There is also the realization of death as being constant death. Things cannot exist or develop without momentum. Change is taking place always. That is why the teachings place tremendous importance on the realization of impermanence. Impermanence becomes extremely important at this particular point of aggression. Aggression is trying to freeze the space, but when you begin to see impermanence, you cannot solidify space anymore. That then is the peak experience of transcending aggression. If you are fully involved with the Bardo experience, of one of the six realms, you also experience your neighboring territory. This also applies to aggression, or the hell realm, which is next to the hungry ghost realm. So another aspect of aggression, or hell experience, could also be self-pity, completely closing in, self-condemnation. You condemn yourself because there is nothing attractive in you at all, nothing beautiful. You would basically like to destroy yourself or escape from yourself. That kind of self-condemning quality in oneself could be said to be very positive in a way. You are just about to discover the opposite of that. 
you are just about to see the alternatives. Because of the possibility of alternatives, you ask questions based on being other than what you are, other than where you're at, which is a very healthy situation. In that sense, condemnation could be said to be inspiring, as long as the person can proceed further with that condemnation to a further experience of himself or herself, the condemner or the person who condemns, and that which is the object of condemnation are different. As long as one is able to get knowledge of the subject, the particular condemner is removed. In other words, the watcher is removed. When that instinct, the ego-centered notion of trying to achieve perfection, trying to achieve a perfect good thing, is removed, the whole process changes. One whole's attitude changes once you remove that, yet the condemnation in itself remains as an independent situation. And that particular independent situation or condemning quality contains light and space and questions and doubts and confusions. That such confusion and doubt and questions that manages to be born brings the possibility of the dawn breaking through. In the tantric analysis, it is said that the dawn of the Vajrasattva is breaking through. That is to say, the dawn of indestructibility, continuity, is just about to show through. Talking about aggression, from the point of view, becomes a creative thing. The whole pattern of aggression, of the Hell Realm, becomes very positive, something that we could work on," said the anima. You say that self-condemnation or self-pity may be positive, but from my experiences, observing people in these situations, they decay into hate and withdrawal. I rarely see people get themselves out of this box, yet you feel, from what I hear, that there seems to be a self-energizing element which forces people into self-examination or asking questions. I find this extremely rare. I have wondered what was lacking in their lives. Those who have touched rock bottom more or less, flirted with suicide. I see very little evidence that something arises out of the ashes of self-destruction. The intelligence of self-condemnation has an extremely keen eye, keen sight. It sees every move and every mistake that you make. It is very precise and very clear. And this seems to come from the ego's inspiration of wanting to protect oneself. But somehow, strangely enough, it doesn't work like that. It works on a wider scale, beyond the ego level. You see, the point is that intelligence is a neutral thing. A certain part of intelligence is empowered by ego and a certain part of intelligence becomes panoramic intelligence. It begins to see the situation as it is. So condemning could be said to be another way of shaking you up or breaking you from the extreme belief of what you would like to be to what you are in terms of ego. So it is a very natural creative process as it is. She said, I hear you. And once you are aware of all the things that go on, then the possibility to descend lower seems likely. That is because you are looking from the point of view of the watcher. You are watching your condemnation, and you are manipulating it. You are commenting on it. That is why it becomes clumsy, she said. But without some energizing act to transcend this watching, you might get fascinated by the self-condemnation. You might wallow in self-pity. 
It does not seem to be self-energizing, but proof of decay. That is the point I'm trying to get at. Wherever there is no washer involved, you are looking into the wise, wholly open ground of every situation, which is open space. Remove the criteria. Once you remove limited criteria, discriminating wisdom is automatically there. I wouldn't exactly call that a transformation in terms of changing one thing to another, bad into good. It is a kind of natural awakeness in which the negative is positive. The awakened state of negative is positive in its own raw and rugged quality. The reason you could have this kind of revelation, instead of the self-condemnation you might have had, is because you see yourself suddenly from an entirely different angle, and it's a big shock. You feel very terribly at this moment, but a very strange thing happens. Afterward, there is a great relief. Out of that condemnation, you are looking into the origin of pain and how it develops. From that goal, the inspiration of the goal develops, and from there, the inspiration of the path develops to lead toward the freedom of suffering, she said. And can the watcher have a positive function? If the watcher is being used as an observer, then it is positive in a sense. But if the watcher is being used as a guardian, then it begins to become a different thing. Because once you have a guard, the guard must know whom to allow, whom not to allow. Those kinds of criteria begin to develop, she said. So it would be in the sense of a fair witness that it could be positive. Just a witness, yes, pure witness. But that is dangerous to talk about or to recommend. We have a tendency to overindulge in the watcher, which has possibilities of becoming a guardian, she said. So when I have a flash of anger, it might be good just to plunge into it rather than observe it? I mean to really become that feeling? Exactly. That doesn't mean you should murder somebody or that you should suppress your anger. Just see the natural anger quality as it is. The abstract quality of anger, like the abstract quality of condemning yourself, she said. Bardo experience would seem to be something that you go along with and let happen. It seems as if the watcher is something to get out of. The watcher is the self-consciousness. All six Bardo experiences are connected with the watcher, with the peak experience of watching yourself and the possibility of losing your grip, the watcher's grip, which is freedom, the awakened state. That ambiguity as to whether you will be able to maintain your watchfulness or whether you are going to lose your watchfulness builds into a peak experience, she said. And how is it possible to make friends with the ego without going astray through indulgence into ego trips? Generally, ego is not aware of itself, but in this case, you begin to be aware of ego as it is. You don't try to destroy it or to exercise it, but you see it as a step. Each crisis of ego is a step toward understanding, to the awake state. In other words, there are two aspects. Ego purely continuing on its own, as it would like to play its game, and ego being seen in its true nature, in which case the game of ego becomes ironical. At the same time, you don't try to reject it. The game in itself becomes a step, a path, she said. What do you do? You want to get rid of your ego, but you don't reject it? I don't understand. You don't want to get rid of ego. 
That's the whole point. You don't try to get rid of ego at all, but you don't try to maintain ego either, she said. Is that where a sense of humor comes in? Yes, she said. <laughs>